0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where we Chwazi to see who talks first. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob
1: Klopfenstein. Jake, how are you doing tonight? Wonderful, Mark. Always wonderful. However, we don't actually Chwazi because I would always win. I always win at Chwazi. You always lose. It's great. Do you ever get accused of like having a cheater app that always picks you? Always. And it's so stupid. Like, what does that get me? Usually going first in a game is not that helpful. Usually the board game stays better and do it a little later, but whatever. People like to accuse things. Well, I know. And
0: and also the other one that I laugh about is the people that think that they can wiggle their finger and somehow make it pick
1: them, which really usually makes it lose contact and makes it not pick them. Yeah, it goes longer and it's already too long because all we want to be doing is talking and playing games. Speaking of, let's talk about some games, Mark. Sounds great, Jake. But before we do that, we have a couple of little things we need to wrap up. So a while ago, we had mentioned that we were going to give away a copy of Tricks and the Phantom by Oink Games. And that happened. Um, We posted the little thing on Twitter, the giveaway, and we gave it to Mr. Yelcom is his handle on Twitter. He goes by Dom Draws, D-O-M-M-E-D-R-A-W-S. Dominic. Yeah. Yes. And so he won. Giveaways are fun. Hope you enjoy it, Dom. It's a good game. Yeah, very cool.
0: Congratulations. And, uh, you know, thank you for helping us spread the love about Mogul's
1: Wait, what? Mogul's Oh, yes. That was the whole thing. Mark, why don't you describe about it? Jake, we did a thing. We did. We do very few things, but that was certainly one thing we did.
0: <laughs> so a little bit of background. I'm sure if you've listened to any episodes over the course of the summer, you've heard us talk about this mythical Mogul's thing that we were going to do this fall. And we did it. And it's been a very busy couple of extremely fun fill weeks leading up to it and actually carrying it out. So little background, Mogul's Con is our first gaming convention here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area for our listeners and friends of the show, and also some friends and old friends and new friends locally. So that happened actually about a
1: week ago. And we, man, we had a great crowd for it. We couldn't have had a better time. I think we had somewhere around like 150 different board games there. We had about 48 or 50 people in total coming in and we played everything from 18xx down to Wingspan to Arboretum to I saw some big terrain co-ops and it was an absolutely wonderful time. I think we'll probably do a bigger description of kind of Mogul's Con and maybe a little bit down the line, but it was an absolutely wonderful weekend. We're so thankful to everybody that was able to make it and I hope next year everybody else will be able to come. So one of the funny things about it is
0: we managed to put up a whiteboard in the room that we were holding the event at, and we encouraged everybody to write down the games that they had played so that we had this giant sheet of all the games that got played over the course of the weekend. And the breadth was really impressive. And then people would put checks behind games that were already there that got multiple plays. I got to tip my hat to the guy who thought it was funny to put Chwazi up there and all the checks behind that. That was pretty funny. It was hilarious.
1: It was an absolutely wonderful weekend. I am exhausted from it. I was wonderful playing <laughs> games, but man, I am so tired. It is. I got to do just get a normal weekend, man. Just got to get a normal weekend. So it was
0: about 12 hours per day, you know, on average. Saturday was longer, Friday was a little bit shorter, but we were open for a full day, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the uh, Rosemount Community Center. And we had a really, really nice room with uh, good light and good tables and beverages and so forth. So... It was a lot of gaming. Jake and I brought the lion's share of both of our gaming collections to set out as a game library, along with uh, many of our friends like J-Mac brought some, Dennis brought some, Kirk brought some, as well as many of the attendees brought games. So, man, if you couldn't find a game there that you wanted to play, (laughs) I, I, I don't know what's wrong with you there.
1: We literally had everything. Yeah, we had a bunch of good stuff in The main reason we brought all those is to get a header photo for Twitter. So keep an eye out for when we actually add that to our Twitter photo. (laughs) We might
0: have also done it to make sure that our attendees had a lovely selection of things to play, whether they came from near or
1: far. We're all selfish. We just need a Twitter header photo. That was the main reason. So it's lug about 500 pounds of games and bring them all the way down to Rosemount.
0: Easy. Yeah. So I was promised a certain thing that weekend by probably about six people. And that thing has yet to materialize, Jake. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely not. I'm very confused. <laughs> okay, so as it turns out, it's physically difficult to transport like 150 games in your truck. Like nobody has that many gaming bags. And so I just made lemons out of lemonade, you know, or le- yeah, yeah, I actually made lemons out of lemonade. I stacked the games up in the back of my SUV carefully so they wouldn't tumble around and were well protected and uh, made it down there just fine. And the unloading crew disagreed with my packing method and decided that they would buy me a whole bunch of Ikea bags for next time around.
1: Well, it was so funny because I bought a bunch of Ikea bags because you can buy them on Amazon and it took two clicks. And I told you about this on a Wednesday before MogulsCon, And I was like, oh, Mark's got it. Or I might have told you on a Monday before that. So I was like oh, will place of the order today. He'll get them on. He'll get them by Thursday and it'll be totally fine. Lo and behold, you didn't do that at all. And I very much yep. overestimated how many bags you have. So I have a handful extra I can probably give you, seeing as how I don't really need to move that many things that often.
0: Little things like, I don't know, pizza for 50. That might have been a larger thing on my to do list before then than ordering bags. They're not mutually exclusive, but
1: yes. What was some of your favorite experiences over the course of the weekend, Jake? So I played in 18xx every single day at MochaCon. That was definitely wonderful to do. Um, some other ones were just kind of meeting some new people. We put a thread out and posted it to our local thread on BGG. And there's a lot of people's avatars that I see po- posting on there often, but I never actually got to meet them. And actually meeting some of the folks who were kind enough to come to our event, was wonderful and putting faces to names is always fun with all these wonderful people you meet on the internet. So
0: that was probably my favorite. What about you, Mark? Oh, unquestionably, that was it. I really doubled down on trying to be a great host over the weekend and try to spend meaningful time with as many attendees as I possibly could, and especially the people that came in from out of town. I'm super happy because I achieved that goal and really feel like I got to spend time and play games with everybody that traveled to see us and as many other people as possible That was my biggest triumph of the weekend. And my second biggest triumph of the weekend is that people stayed for literally every minute that we were open. Like I was a little worried about during the day on Friday and (laughs) it was actually fairly busy all day Friday. And uh, all the way up until the bitter end on Sunday. So I was really happy that people really actually showed up and that they really actually stayed. And and there was a number of people that were only planning for coming for a day that ended up there
1: (laughs) either all three days or two
0: days for sure. And so that also made
1: me feel really good. Yeah, it was wonderful. I don't think we could have had it go any better. I'm so excited to see what next year is going to look like. And we got to get those pictures that we took posted out there so we can see all the fun that we had.
0: We do. As it turns out, DZ is a a very accomplished photographer, and he spent the weekend running around with cameras when not playing games. And we really have a lovely set of photos from the weekend that we just got to get through and uh,
1: make public. So you'll see some pictures of the event coming up soon. Sounds wonderful. All right, let's talk about some games we played. And usually this section is the games we played this week. But this is games that we've played in the last while, we'll say. We have yeah. a whole pile of <laughs> games to talk about. We got a bunch of makeup to do because, you know, as
0: it turns out putting on an event like Mogul's Con takes some time, and <laughs> that was time that we couldn't record.
1: So, we got some catch up to do. We certainly do. Let's start it with some games. I'm going to start with one that we played the absolute crap out of this weekend, and it was really fun, not at Mogul's Con, but at another Buddy's Con weekend, and it was absolutely wonderful. I'm talking about Crokinole. So I went up to Winnipeg in between Mogul's Con and the Buddy's Con this weekend, and I went up there for a work trip, and so I drove up there and saw some customers on the way back home, back to the Minneapolis area, and I thought, you know what? coconut boards are really big. They're expensive to buy shipped to you. And maybe I should just pick up one in Canada. So I post on a thread online, a handy Canadian friend posts me where to go. And I go to Lee Valley tools, which is almost like a woodworking shop mixed with like a sparsely decorated home, home kitchen area, plus some Yeti gear. It was a very strange store. And bought a wonderful Crokinole board, and we brought it to the BuddyCon this weekend at my cabin, and it couldn't have went over any better. I don't think there was a moment at the BuddyCon where people were not playing Crokinole. What would you think of it, Mark? I know you only played it on Sunday evening with me, but did you like it? You know, when you said that you were bringing a board game, you weren't kidding. What do you mean? Because it's such a big piece of board.
0: It's a board. It's a giant (laughs) board. board. Yes, it's a giant board. It is literally a board game. So it was fun. Um, I didn't get a chance to play it till literally five minutes before we left last night. I had some misconceptions about what it was. I thought it was pretty much, you know, shuffleboard and a table or something like that, that it's, you know, closest to the hole wins and blah, 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 blah. And uh, certainly the scoring method is more interesting than that. I certainly see how, you know, on a casual evening when you've uh, got a few adult beverages and you're sitting around with your buddies where that could be a raucous good time. Yeah, I do have one little tiny beef about the Crokinole board, though, because
1: I definitely think it detracted away from playing real board games. See, that's the question. I do not agree that it is not a real board game. It is a different game. It's more similar to it's different than darts. And it's more board game than pool, obviously, but it's in that neighborhood. And so just to describe for the listener who's never heard of Crokinole before, which is sad if you've never heard of it. It's a big circle, like 36 inches wide-ish. And it's divided into quadrants, and then there's three rings, concentric rings, going around it. And each one of those corresponds to the scoring area. Five points, 10 points, and 15 points for the very middle. That has surrounded by six or eight pegs to make sure that it's not as easy to flick in there. And then players take alternating turns flicking little wooden discs into the center area. And there's a handful of rules where if there's an opponent's disc on the board, you have to hit it with one of your discs. But if there's no opponent's disc on the board, you have to flick it and have it land within the 15 area. Also subset within the 15 point area, there's a recessed 20 point area. And if you get it to land in there, the piece is taken from the board and placed in a sideboard area to which it'll be scored for 20 points at the end of the game and no one can flick it and hit it out. So it's a guaranteed 20 points. But I understand your complaint of it's not like other games, but it's not like pool. It's different. To me, it felt much more similar to board games than other games of its ilk. Let's consider ping pong or like shuffleboard or hell, hammerschlagen, something along those lines. It's definitely a board game. (laughs) You just confused every listener that isn't from either Wisconsin or Minnesota. (laughs) We are hyper regional, but it's (laughs) it's as far in board games I'm willing to go and still call something a board game because something like table tennis or ping pong is clearly not a board game. But this one definitely is. Yeah, there was a number of times where and again, apparently I'm the fun
0: sucker on this one, but there was a number of times I would I, I was looking to drum up a game and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, looking over my carefully curated piles of games and everybody else is thinking, Ooh, what should we fire up here? Who can I play with? Hey, anybody want to play a game? And there's two people sitting playing Crokinole and six people standing around watching them just going, "Now nah, we're good.
1: Yeah, that, that also is that buddy con and let's not get into it too much, but people just kind of want to relax. It's a relaxing kind of buddy con and I don't think people are always trying to do game after game after game like me and you are. So I think it yep. gave them an you know, opportunity no to kind of chill a little bit more.
0: So anywho. And there's no question that it was very much enjoyed by the crowd over the weekend. So, you know,
1: you're the smart one here. There you go. I'm an absolute loving with it. I was going to leave it at my cabin for the summer and I decided to say, nope, I can't leave that one at the cabin. I need it all winter. So it's at my house now safe and sound. I love it. Anyway, that's Crokinole. Uh, my copy being from Lee Valley Tools. It's absolutely wonderful. On the mogul scale, I don't even feel like we should give it a mogul scale, but it's a 1A. <laughs> it's got to be a 1A, right? Well, yeah. I mean, strategy,
0: you flick them, and knock the other ones out. Rules, flick them and knock the other ones out. There, 1A. Done. <laughs> All right. What'd you get played, bud? Well, being that we're talking about a whole bunch of wood, we also had the chance to have our annual head butting head session involving a whole bunch of wood and cows and sheep and stone. I was worried. I was
1: worried where the sentence was going at the start of this
0: (laughs) and dwarves. What we're talking about is Uwe Rosenberg's masterpiece Caverna. This is a game that we've both played a lot. And every year as a background at this BuddyCon, we have a, uh, you know, experts only showdown. All of us think that we are Caverna sharks and we all square off against each other and we all take vows to not use the office thing to overhang the tiles and to make it a fair fight and away we go. (laughs) And, And that all went down on Saturday morning and boy, it did not disappoint, did it, Jake? It absolutely
1: did not. My strategy for normally our yearly thing is to go pretty farming heavy with very little mining, except for to do a big family. And that had worked out well for me for the last two years. And this year, I decided to pivot and go heavy mining strategy. And I came in second. And I've thought about just writing and having to quit the podcast because I'm no longer a gamer, Mark. I'm I'm no longer good. I had to give up my throne to Uncle Kirk. It's the worst.
0: Likewise, too. my typical style of play is I usually go heavy minds and adventuring and uh, lean into that one. But I was late in the turn order and everybody else grabbed that before I went there and I went, "Uh, ah, hey, time to try something new. So I decided to do what you normally do with the heavy farming, large family style of play. And that did not work so well for me.
1: No, which is sad because I think the only thing that was your issue is you didn't start building up your family more quickly. Um, you built up yeah. your food economy first, which got really productive, but you need to almost not build up your food economy until late game. You want to build up your food economy while you build up your family, not build up your food economy so you can build up your family. But I mean, it was wonderful to play. Everyone showed really well. And I think we played it in how long? An hour 45 for a four or five player game. Yeah, it was that was funny. You know, everybody that thinks that's
0: a long game, we played a four, a full four player game, set up, play, you know, let her rip in in an hour forty five minutes, and. It was to the point that we would be back around the turn order again before the people that were adventuring had the chance to pick out their three things from the menu.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was being a little snippy. I think that was probably my bad thing about this con weekend. I just kept on pushing people to play really, really, really quickly. And it worked out well because we got to play a whole bunch of cool games. But that being said, I did get a little snippy with Kirk because we went back to him and he just had to choose three things and he just wasn't choosing them. And he won. So he took the most time. So whoever takes the most <laughs> time wins, I guess. Oh, come on. Oh, we, we need not send that message, Jake. Oh, there it is. Fine. Because then it'll slow down. No, it was an absolutely wonderful that, game. That's, that's bad reinforcement. There it is. It went absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Such a happy thing and tradition that we do every every time at ClapCon. At it was awesome. Yep.
0: That's Caverna by Uwe Rosenberg, published locally by Lookout and Mayfair Games. And we've previously rated that as a 3D on the mogul scale. Before we get back into this one. Probably a recap of the mogul scale just very briefly isn't a bad idea. That's a way that we try to categorize how heavy or light a game is. The first number digit is actually how much rules and how much rules fiddliness there is. The letter is how much strategic density there is, like how much thought and how much how deep is the game. So 3D kind of middle of the road rules and D
1: meaning that there is more strategy than normal. So that's Caverna. That's awesome. I've also had a chance to play a relatively new kind of hot, at least in our circles, game. And had a really good time with it. I'm speaking of Irish Gage, which is designed by Tom Russell and Capstone Games. This is a cube rail game set in Ireland. You probably deduce that by the by the name there. What a cube rail game is, you don't say is uh, it's a series of games that all have shares and they have some sort of money usually. And there's usually a hexagonal map that you put little squares or trains in to be able to build these little routes, to try to go to regions to generate. Either victory points or money or yada yada and so on and so forth. I am not that into trains as a concept, but I am very into train games. I like what they ask of me as a game. And Irish Gage has certainly not disappointed. I really like a game called Chicago Express that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. And this one is very similar, but it asks different questions. It's a very weird comparison, but I think of Chicago Express is to like stock shenanigans 18xx games while Irish Gauge is more about kind of timing and operation-y 18xx games. They both feel very similar, but I absolutely have loved my plays of Irish Gauge, and I'm hoping that I'm going to keep on getting it to the table with it being so very fast and so very fun. What would you think of it, Mark? Oh,
0: I think that I'm interested enough to play it that uh, I acquired a copy of mine. Fortunately, our good friend Evans gave us a, <laughs> sold me a copy at MogulsCon. By the way, a near-perfect copy, shall we say. Oh, you don't have the glue. I do not. It's beautiful. And I have not had a chance to play this yet. So I've heard lots of good things about it. I've never played this game. Nope. I've looked at it and I went, oh,
1: I think I've played this game six times. That's amazing. You've never played it. How often do we play together, Jake? I know. It's so funny. We always play near each other. We're always like talking, but we're at different (laughs) tables. We're always (laughs) chatting, but we're not necessarily playing the same game. Well, I guess I'll describe what you're actually doing a little bit more in the game because you've never actually played it. You've seen it played. Yeah. And and also
0: while you're at it, I'd I'd love an opinion on would this be a good game for my family? Because it's,
1: you know, being a little more operational and so forth. I'll get that one out of the way first. Yes, it's so good. It's way lighter than Chicago Express, I think, in like opacity. You can definitely understand what's going on in it much more quickly which is really fun. So in Irish Gauge, what you're doing is you're a bunch of different investors investing in five different railroads in Ireland. And what you get to do is there's four different actions on the in the game. And you do one of four on your turn. And it's as bog simple as that. One of them is increase a railway to which you own a share of. Depending on how you increase it, you can make it worth more money. You can also auction shares of railroads. Pretty simple. All you do is you have to pay the minimum value, which is always how much they're worth at end game as well. Finally, you can call for dividends, which is where you pull some cubes out and check to see if your railroad makes some money, which is the main issue in the game because it is a little confusing. There's three different types of cities, pink, white, and black. And depending on whether or not you actually pull out the cubes will determine whether or not they generate money for your company. And that's really where the issue happens because you need to have two revenue generating sources. Per each route. And so if you don't have that, your companies were zero. So counting, it's a little annoying, but you can kind of grok easily at the table and look down and say, okay, well, I know Orange is a pretty good company. It's connected to all this crap. And Yellow probably is less good because it's connected to less crap. And then the final thing you can do is you can put those aforementioned cubes out on the board. But this game plays fast. It offers interesting decisions. It is very consistent in play compared to other kind of more fragile games. And it's it's just a hoot. It's it's really fun to see how the game really boils down and kind of what everyone goes for. And I've on top of it, it's a very beautiful production from Capstone Games. They did an absolutely wonderful job with the components and it's really affordable. I think I bought it pre-ordered for thirty bucks shipped. It's it's amazing. It's great. Yeah, that's hard to beat. How many does this play? Uh three till six, I believe. It might play three Ooh. to five. Okay. Great. So more than four is the important part. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have played it with more than four people. I don't know if it allows you to, but I certainly did.
0: <laughs> yeah, We always kind of up value any game that's a filler length and is not a party game and plays more than
1: four. And that fits nicely into that pocket, doesn't it? Absolutely. So that is Irish Gauge by Tom Russell and published by Capstone Games. We're giving on the mogul scale a 2C, maybe a 2B, depending on kind of what day you want to do and how much effort you want to put into it. Very cool. Hey, I got a brand new favorite train game also
0: over the Moguls Con weekend, and I got a chance to play this with a whole bunch of different people. I'm referring to Across the United States by Hisashi Hayashi and Okazu Brand. Jake, we love us some
1: Hisashi Hayashi, don't we? Our boy. I was literally saying our boy Hisashi Hayashi in my head. I lo- he's, he's our guy. <laughs> We just love him. A
0: lot of our highest ranked games of all are by Hisashi Hayashi. I'm referring to Yokohama. I'm referring to Metro X and many others. So. he also did trick of the rails, right? Yeah, indeed he did. So a train game by Hisashi Hayashi is an auto buy in my world, and I was able to pick this one up at Gen Con. This is not one, despite the title, that has been published yet in the US, but is actually available, or was at least, from Meeplesource.com. And they delivered me one at Gen Con, and it's actually a pretty small box. I mean, it's about the same size as the Irish Gauge box. It's sort of a uh it's less normal wide game. though. It's thin. And skinny. Yes. Skinny. Very skinny. I love the skinny boxes. So, the idea is that you've got a map of the United States, which is pretty heavily abstracted. Like, you know, New Orleans is kind of in the middle of Texas and you know, a few other things like that. But, you know, hey, it's for the Japanese market. The idea is that every round you're going to play a stock share. Wherever you play a stock share out into the discard pile is the route that you get to extend. And like Ticket to Ride, you have route tickets that you're trying to fill. Like Yokohama, you have freight tickets that you're trying to fill with resources. And depending on what cities you connect, you get to do the actions associated with those cities, like you might get to go lay a couple more pieces of rail, or you might get to buy a a share of stock, or you might get to, oh, I don't know, you might get some resources out of that, or you can industrialize by making it a city to give you more resources, and the game actually goes just one time through the deck, which... For us, the time we played was probably 30 minutes. This was a very quick game. And at the end, there's sort of the Union Pacific style or Acquire style. Who has the most shares, gets the most money, payout. And then you tally up the resources that you have. You tally up the freight tickets and passenger tickets that you have. And, uh, you know, a few other point salad things. And you're all said and done. And, wow, there's a lot of decisions for such a short game in that one. Agreed. It's
1: really open because you can play... Any card that you have in your hand, which is, I believe, four, and you can discard any one of those four. So the permutation there is a pretty big. And then on top of that, when you play a share, you get to connect it on any point of its track. So you can really extend and get a lot of different actions out of this game, which is really fun because it seemed like a handful of us went a bunch of different directions. I kind of equate this game to ticket to ride, but pack style. So we've talked about packs from a lot. And in Pax Amir, you are not necessarily the people playing a war game, but you're the people kind of influencing the people who are playing the war game. And in this, I found like we are not playing Ticket to Ride, but we are like influencing the people who are playing <laughs> Ticket to Ride and trying to get the most benefit for ourselves while also like owning what these weird Ticket to Ride people are doing. But it's a great game, especially compared to it felt way more like Ticket to Ride than any game I've played kind of since.
0: Yeah, but not but not but a bad the way. Funny part is not. A bad yeah, way. the only I, I actually called it a tater tot hot dish of train yes. games because, you know, there's like the route selection thing of ticket to ride and then there's like the build route and have the most shares like like Union Pacific and then there is get resources and fill contracts like Yokohama. And it's literally like this weird, interesting amalgamation of like five or six different games that when put all together ends up being its own thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: I was a big fan of this one. I still don't know if I'm going to try to get a copy. It seems to be relatively hard to get in the States, but it's the perfect size box and it seems to really play really smoothly, which is always fun and something I'm looking forward into.
0: I ended up playing this with, I bet I played it with 10 or 12 different people over the course of the weekend and uh, it was a thumbs up by everybody that played.
1: Absolutely. It's a wonderful game. What would you give it on the mogul scale?
0: I think the teach I gave you in probably five minutes or less. So I'm giving this a two rules wise. But there's some actual real decisions to make for a 35 or 40 minute game. So I'm I'm putting this one at a 2C.
1: I would agree. I'd probably do a 2C minus. But yes, agreed. It feels wrong yep. calling it two B. Yeah, it's definitely not a 2B. Absolutely. Well, that was across the United States by Hisashi Hayashi, published by Okazu brand, maybe brought over at some point in time, by another publisher. It was a fun one. I would
0: not be shocked if a year down the road or next Gen Con, we don't see AEG or somebody pick this up
1: and have this one for sale. Agreed. I also was able to play a pretty fast couple of games at a couple of Wednesdays ago, which I'd love to talk about. The first one being one that... I did not like very much, um, published by the aforementioned EEG. I'm speaking of point salad by Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankwich. I did not like this game at all, Mark. Um, I don't know if you actually played it, but Oh my God, I don't even know if I call it a game. So for those who don't know what a point salad game is, it's a kind of colloquial term to describe Euro games where everything you do gets you points. This is not like games where you have a point card and it comes up like four times throughout the game and that's the only way you get points. This is like, okay, well, if I do this action, I get three and a half points. If I do this action, I get four and a half, but I probably will only get two and a half next turn. And it's all of everything you do gets you points. Point salads games are usually used to describe a Steffenfeld game. So like the designer of (laughs) Castles of Burgundy, where it's just like kind of everything you're doing gets you stuff. And it's also kind of, spoken by detractors is kind of a bad term for Euro games. But so this one, they kind of ran with a theme um, and they named it point salad. And what you're doing is you're building a salad with different vegetables to get yourself points. And all you're doing is drawing cards. This is akin to the deck building, deck building game, where you're literally constructing a wooden structure on the back of a house that is called a deck in a deck building game. It's dumb. But anywho, in point salad, all you're doing is drawing some cards. You either get two Of the salad component cards, which range from like onions to carrots to leaves to different leaves to radishes, tomatoes, tomatoes, all the different salad components and or you're scoring, picking up scoring cards, which are the backside of aforementioned ingredient cards. That's the whole game. And the scoring is really simple. So it's like for every bell pepper, you have minus two points, but for every X, Y, Z, onion you have you get two four or eight points or whatever whatever you have you're not building these in sets you're not putting them in bins you're not actually making cells you're just building a collection of ingredients and at the end you're going to score it i don't know it seemed to not be very good it played fast which is probably the best thing about it but on that it's just like i'd so much (laughs) rather play a small box game with interesting decisions than just what am I going to grab before it comes back to me? And oh, no, it's completely tactile. It's a game where you can completely close your eyes, look around the board, see the odds of other ingredients coming out and shoot, make your choice. It's it was not something for me. Very light. I would avoid point salad. No, thanks. I thought it was OK. This is a game that if I owned, I'd, I'd, I'd ditch the box, I'd take
0: the cards and I'd jam it inside my travel game case. And I'd get a few minutes of uh, humor out of it sitting in the airport or something like that and not overthink it too much. And, uh, you know, I think as long as you can mentally keep it in that bin as a, a, you know, quick diversion, it's not so bad, but I wouldn't try to ascribe any sort of deep mental uh, process to it.
1: But at any point, would you rather play this game versus Nine Tiles Panic or a game of its ill?
0: Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, exactly. No, I would I w- much rather play
1: those. I would never. And maybe people aren't into speed games. OK, so let's maybe play startups or let's play something else. I mean, it's not rocket science to choose a quick game that we like that's small. And if the only point and benefit of a game is that it's quick and kind of punny. No, thanks. Um, Yeah. The other
0: thing I will say for it is the rules teach on it is about 30 seconds long. If that is the time and a
1: place for that. Agreed. And I I will say I do come from a biased place of I do not play with incredibly casual gamers. It seems like I play with pretty experienced gamers. Or if I do play with really casual gamers, I'm going to play something else like Deep Sea Adventure or something that has a little bit better theme than grabbing onions that are pretty <laughs> boring and green looking. You know, it's just, I don't know. I don't know really who this game's for because it's a really light game, obviously for gamers, because it's a pun about a gamer hobby. I don't know. It's dumb. I think this game's silly. I'm I'm fine to play it whenever, but ugh, no thanks. On the mogul scale, given 1B.
0: You know, you could make an argument too uh, that it's a 1A. There are some decisions to make. I mean, you do have to figure out when you're going to flip the card. I misspoke. It's a 1A. I misspoke. I, 100%, I just mistyped it. It's supposed to be a 1A. Ha! <laughs> No, I actually I actually changed it to a 1B. You did? There's no way this <laughs> game is a 1B mark. You're giving it the same difficulty level as rock, paper, scissors.
1: Yes, it's just as easy as Crokinole. <laughs> no way.
0: There are some decisions to make. I mean, a 1A is a game with no decisions, you know, and this, there are decisions to make in this game. Not saying they're good decisions or deep decisions, but there are decisions.
1: I'm going to choose randomly next time and see how good my score is and see how okay it is. we're on we're on okay <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be undecided here mark and we'll just leave it at a 1a slash b and see who's the person who updates the mogul scale we'll just see we'll see <laughs> i will confess that it's a soft b it's a soft b all right well anyhow, that's point salad by molly johnson robert melvin and sean stankwich published by aeg why don't you bring up a better game mark okay how about I bring up a worse game? Oh, worse game? Oh, no.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> let's let's, uh, you know, let's get these out of the way and then we can finish on, a, on, on an up note. How about that? Let's do it. OK, we talked about big, heavy boxes of stuff earlier in this episode, and this is probably the reigning king of big, heavy boxes of stuff that is not named Gloomhaven. Because Gloomhaven's a great game, full stop. So we're not talking about Gloomhaven, but we're talking about something that comes in exactly the same size box and is very similar in weight. What I'm referring to is Edge of Darkness by John D. Clare, published by AEG recently fulfilled by Kickstarter and uh, one of the most beautiful slash ridiculously overdone
1: games that have come out in a very, very, very long time. It was ridiculous. Just seeing you play it at the next table over, I thought you guys were setting up like a miniatures war game. It was that big. Like it looked like you're playing 40K.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, there's
1: terrain like the game had terrain.
0: (laughs) There is there's a large 3D dice tower building in there and You know, this is a a bit like John D. Clare did for Mystic Veil, what Uwe Rosenberg did for Patchwork, right? You know, he came out with this kind of proof of concept little game that kind of proved out a concept and then blew it out writ large and made a large production out of it. I'm referring to the fact that he took Mystic Veil, that card crafting thing with the clear cards, and then made a big box game out of it. This is a case where absolutely more is less mystic veil is the better game at a fraction of the cost i am happy i didn't have to be subjected
1: to edge of darkness then
0: yeah I, now having said that it's a fine game it's fine it's not 150 dollars fine it's not 20 pounds fine it's 40 dollars fine so what the, the challenge that i had with this game isn't that it's a bad game it's fine if i paid 40 bucks for it it'd be okay but it has all this stuff that don't bring a darn thing to the game. Like, there is 40 miniatures in there. that bring absolutely nothing to the pile. They really just replace action pawns that you put out there. Also, there's these beautifully illustrated monsters that are so cool. And when you see what they do, they just literally do like, well, this one does two damage. That one does three damage. That's it. There's no thematic anything to those things. And there's just all these things that were not added to the theme or not made it story rich or anything like that. So. Boy, it was, uh, it was something that we played once, and everybody that played it just kind of went, huh, yeah, that was, that was a thing. I suppose I'd play it again, maybe, if there was, you know, maybe. Right. Given the commitment that it is to play it and the size of it, and, and there is a ton of content, I'll give them that, and it's beautiful. Like, this is an extremely beautiful game. Given that there's that much content to it and so forth, this is a game that you conceivably could play for a very long time and a lot. But I don't think there's enough gameplay there where you'd want to.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I was a little apprehensive to play this game. It had big, big, big production value. And it wasn't the kind of production value that I think me and you generally value. We seem to really like screen printed tokens and nicer wooden things or maybe a little 3D printed things. But we don't go for minis for the most part. I think no. I have one or two games that feature minis pretty heavily. And if they do, it's like Eclipse. You know, it's not that style of yeah. Kickstarter stuff. And this game just seemed to have a whole bunch of Kickstarter stuff. I wasn't really interested in the generic medieval fantasy theme. And it, the box was literally the size. It's bigger than the Gloomhaven box or at least the same size, right? Oh, yeah. It's the same size. Yes. I mean, it's just it was just ridiculous. I mean, people often complain about Kickstarter excess in the game. And I think this is probably the perfect example to show them. Wow, that's a lot of just stuff. That's things. Yeah, so ultimately,
0: after playing through a couple of really forgettable playthroughs on it, that it was fine. Like I said, it was fine. If this was the only game I owned and my group was into it, it'd be fine. Right. You're not leaving. You're not
1: going to leave the game group for it. If somebody really wanted to bully this to the
0: table. Sure. No, no, absolutely. I would play it. It's fine. I'll play it. I don't think it's a bad game. I'm just saying that it's uh, entirely unnecessary. yes. Given that it's, uh, you know, pretty highly rated by a number of people and there's some buzz around it and there's a pretty brisk resale market around it, I decided that maybe somebody else would enjoy it more than me. And I uh, passed it along to a gamer that uh, hopefully will enjoy it more than me. Wonderful. Indeed. So anyway, eh, maybe someday I'll be sad I got rid of it because there'll be some expansion comes out that makes it absolutely awesome. But I have limited space and I think I could probably there's enough games out there. So That's Edge of Darkness, John D. Clare, AEG. I'm actually giving this a 4B on the mogul scale. Wow, I think that's the first time we've ever gone lesser. I know. There was a lot of extra weird twiddly stuff in there for a game that was
1: fairly straightforward. Got it. Why don't we do one more of these and we can move on to our main topic for the day, Mark. Much like you said, we'll get our mean ones out of the way and move to one that we absolutely love. I'm going to speak of a game that you have been bothering me to get played this year, and I was being really lame and wasn't bringing it enough, but I brought it to ClopCon, our little buddy con this weekend, and played it, and it was, I hope, a wonderful experience for you, because I know it was a wonderful experience for me. I'm talking about one of the only Euro games that Simon ever made, Lorenzo Il Magnifico by Flaminia Brassini, Virginio Gigli, and Simon Luciani. You put this on my games that Mark would like to play in Jake's collection that we haven't played too much. Are you happy oh, with your I did. decision to put it on that list? Indeed, I am. It was so wonderful. I I don't know why I haven't brought that. It this. was magnificent. It, it has it right in the name. The issue is, I think I had a couple of mediocre plays with this i played it at a lower player count and it's one of those games where you like cover up half the board in a two-player game because it's way too open and so you feel like you lose a lot of the strategy in it because you're just not able to do as much you block off for for you mark you block off both of the can hold multiple number of people production spots so you can only ever produce three or five times in the game depending on if you're taking it every single time for the The green one or if it's the production one where they're actually the different buildings, you can do the other ones. So it's just it it wasn't too good and it wasn't the best teach the first time I did it. And I brought it to a game night and you enjoyed it, but I I didn't bring it enough. And I am so happy you bullied me to bring it because it is an absolutely wonderful game. It is very similar to other Euro games in theme where you are a wealthy family in... Florence in some time in the Renaissance and you're building (laughs) stuff and whatever. It's a bunch of really cool, really, really tight mechanisms that make it absolutely wonderful. My favorite being the shared dice pool. So this is a dice action placement game, like let's say Castles of Burgundy, but in Castles of Burgundy, everybody has their own dice. And so if you roll and you're just rolling sixes or whatever you need all the time, you could do really well. But in this game, Rolling high is usually better, but we all share the pool of dice, and so it's really dealing with the punches that you've been with, and kind of folding into these action cards that you get that make it really tight, and building your little economy, and all this fun stuff. And it was absolutely wonderful. What do you think, Mark?
0: Yeah, this was a great game. I I can't say that my play was absolutely wonderful. I finished dead last and hashtag good <laughs> bully because <laughs> you did teach it. Uh, you know, it's yeah. I know it was a. Uh, this is a game that actually I have I, I, I remember enjoying a lot the first time I played it. I remember thinking, boy, that was great. Well, why haven't I seen that again in the long time? In the meantime, they came out with Coimbra that had a lot of fanfare that I was not a big fan of. So I kind of sat back and I went, oh, boy, I wonder if my taste changed. I wonder if it's really as good as I remember it being. And nope, I think Lorenzo Il Magnifico is definitely that team's best effort to date that I have played because there might be a new contender out there.
1: Ooh, Yes, we will not to mention that. We don't want to get people too excited.
0: Well, we can say okay. it. it's Barrage. Yes, it's getting a lot of buzz right now. This is something that I think we'll absolutely love. And ah, if it was only it was available at all. Absolutely. But we're not talking about Barrage. We're talking about Lorenzo Il
1: Magnifico, which is a wonderful game. I agree with everything you said about it. I don't really have anything to say about it. Specifically, other than it being a wonderful midweight Euro game, it's more tight than most midweight worker games. I would say it's not one of those ones where you do a bajillion things on a turn. You really only have what is it six times four? You have four actions, so 24 actions in the entire game. And how you use those 24 actions oh, yeah. is how you win the game, you know? And everyone's dealt with the same kind of stuff in the same roles. You're not being betrayed by the roles. It just is really about you being the best at being the efficient best family in Florence. It was wonderful. I'm going to bring this one a bunch. The other thing that we did also is
0: uh, you and the first few plays did not play with like the asynchronous starting power thing. Starting cards. uh, What was it? the, 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 The goal cards or whatever they were. Right. Yep. hundred percent. Since then, we've heard that that's really the only way to fly with that one. So we rolled them out this time. And yep, I,
1: I would agree. Those are mandatory. Yeah, it's that's kind of a topic probably for a later episode. But it seems like there should be a better way other than browsing BGG forums for the best way to play games. Like I, when we played Imperial 2020, it's the same thing. Everybody plays with the investor variant or 18 mechs, everyone plays with the hard rush variant, rust variant. I really wish there was like a better way for people to share this kind of community knowledge of games and the best way to play it. Because when I usually I see variant, I'm saying, you know, it's our first time play. I'm never going to deal with that. I just don't really want to deal with it. I'll deal with the base game and I'll add it in when I need to. Like take Dragon Castle, for example. I've never played with the spirits in that game, but you played with them because you didn't know any better and you apparently think it's way better. So, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely Yeah, I need to figure out a way to, like, capture all of those community knowledge on these games. So I'm also going to buy the expansion of this game. What I think they should do is I think they should flip it around. I think
0: rather than saying, here's the game and here's the advanced variant, I think they should actually say, well, this is the game. And by the way, here's a simplified beginner variant if it's your first time. Yeah, I mean, it's just you're doing the same thing, but you're presenting it in a different way. I mean. If the way with the advanced cards is the way that Mr. Gisli and Mr. Luciani play back in Italy, then, by God, that's the way we should play, too. Agreed. That was something that was brought to my attention, like, for example, during Time Crisis, that the way that the designer and the way that the publishers play is that they allow people to time travel in both directions rather than just back in time. And instantly I went, oh, yeah, that would be
1: better, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. So that is Lorenzo Magnifico. I'm adding it to my October gaming bag, and I'm going to leave it in there all of October, probably November too. It's such a wonderful midweight Euro game. On the mogul scale, what would you give it, Mark? Oh, if that isn't a 3C, I don't know what is. Agreed. Completely in agreeing <laughs> agreement with you there, Mark. It's, it's, it's a wonderful game.
0: Uh, square in the middle of that one.
1: The last thing I think I want to talk
0: about, I'm going to go super short for a second and talk about a game that I played a whole bunch of times in the past couple of weeks. And it's just it's a little small box game that I imported from Japan called Eggs of Ostrich. This was originally shown to me at Gen Con by our friend Ashley and just absolutely love it. It has the weird distinction of being the only three player only game that ends in my collection. So you can't play with one, two, four, nothing. You got to have three. If you don't have three. You don't play it. As it turns out, I actually haven't had that much trouble finding people to play it because the teach is two minutes and the play is only 10 minutes. Simplest concept in the world. You've got a bunch of bags where you're collecting ostrich eggs and there's a number of eggs that come up every round and you just put out a card upside down about which bag you're going to put the eggs into. And then everybody flips them over and everybody that wants some eggs gets their share of the bags. So like, you know, it'll say 10 eggs. Let's say you want to put those into bag number three and you flip over your bag number three. And okay, everybody else flipped over a card. So you take the 10 eggs and you divide by three and round down. Everybody gets three eggs and boom, my three bag is perfectly full. And I would score full points for each one of those eggs. Every unfull bag is only a half point. The problem comes in is that there's a skip card in there. If somebody plays the skip card, now suddenly the divisor becomes two rather than three. And those three eggs you thought you were putting into your three bag, well, now you're putting five eggs into your three bags. And your bag breaks and is unusable for the rest of the game. And you lose any eggs that were already in there. Oops. Where that gets really bad is you think, oh, I'm just going to take the seven bag. That's got plenty of space. That's a 10 card. And your two opponents put out a skip card. And now you're trying to shove 10, <laughs> 10 eggs into a seven bag. And uh, away it goes. There's also this neat little idea called Amber in there that if you're the only person to play a skip, you get the Amber, which is worth uh, three or four four points, I believe. Seems like that would never happen. But what weirdly happens is somebody tries to metagame it and stay out and just play a normal card or they played a skip around before because your cards actually have to rest a turn. You don't have all the cards every time. And it's amazing how many times that one person will end up just getting it to themselves. And then the round after that, only one person has a skip and then they end up winning the amber card that randomly gets flipped up the card
1: after that. Lots of fun on this game. Jake, you got to try this one with me sometime soon. I know. I mean, I like small box Japanese games. And when we did our shared red rabbit, uh, red rabbit, white rabbit, whatever colored rabbit, white rabbit. Order. color from order from Japan, I you said you really should buy us one. I was like, you know what? I don't. And so I'm kind of worried about playing it. And if I missed up on getting a small box Japanese game, which we like so much. Yes, I will happily play that one with you anytime. It looks like a hoot and a holler.
0: This, like in front of the elevators, almost out oinks the oinks.
1: Interesting. Maybe it's a Japanese yeah. design ethos we like so much, not necessarily just the oinks. It might be, because boy, a lot of these little tiny card box Japanese games we've gotten lately have been just wonderful. Eggs of Ostrich by Shipmei Sato. What would you give it on the mogul scale, Mr. Tesky? This is a 1A. Just a quick little fun game that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of thought
0: to it, but it's still an A and it takes two minutes to teach.
1: If this is a 1A, point sell it's a 1A. Calling
0: it a 1A. They're all 1As. All right. All right. I'll give it to you. (laughs) We're we're just we're just (laughs)
1: we're not even going to rate games like rock, paper, scissors. Got it. Yeah. These are gamer games. Those are zeros. We don't play rock, paper, scissors. I bet you it's in the BGG database, though. Uh, It is. Yeah.
0: It's like number 16,534 out of 16,534. One of the reasons that I love these Japanese games is that there's always a high degree of interactivity in these games. They always involve some interesting little social contract that gets bent or broken. There's always a little bit of bluffing or negotiation or auction or there's some little highly interactive element in there. And they often tend to have just one of those things in there and they exploit a little loophole in there. And that's that little one trick pony is what makes the game interesting and fun. This is a topic that has come up a lot between Jake and I and a lot in the industry lately is interactivity. It's It, it sort of feels like it's the
1: buzz rage of right now, wouldn't you say, Jake? Yeah, and maybe it's just be in our circles. The But it seems like I'm running into a lot of people that really either like or dislike interactivity. It's a term and an XYZ trait to a game that I hear discussed a lot.
0: And what's funny about it is as we start discussing it,
1: We don't actually understand what it is. Like everything. It seems like every term in this hobby is people talking at things and then realizing, oh, we're not using the same terms or terms, pardon me. And we somehow have had this heated discussion on what we feel about interactivity in games. It turns out we don't even agree on what interactivity is. Yeah. And
0: there's been cases where we've come out of a game and somebody says, oh, I don't like that. It wasn't interactive at all. And we're (laughs) looking at each other going, that game is super interactive. Like, did you not notice that point at which I cut your knees out from underneath you with that move? Like, if that isn't interactivity, I don't know what is. Right. So as it turns out, we discovered last night, there's actually a lot of different types of interactivity. and. I took a stab at this today. I I put some thought around the different types of interactivity. And Jake, if I miss some, please uh, chime in and add to my list here. But I realized that there is explicit interactivity and there is implicit interactivity. Explicit interactivity is, I think, what is probably the most obviously interactivity to the layperson. Like if you come up to a game, a, a party game. And everybody's kind of on their feet and yelling out answers to a game and guessing and, you know, laughing and high-fiving each other. Well, that's that that to a layperson looks really interactive. Yes. But there are other types of non-party game interactivity like negotiation, super interactive. So like games like uh, Sidereal Confluence, that's a game that's nothing but interactivity. Auctions. Auctions are probably one of the most interactive thing because the people that you're playing with are determining the market price and you're trying to beat them. And, you know, it's auction. Everybody says that auction games can't be played solo or auction games really can't be played with two for exactly that reason. There's also cooperative games, I would say, are also very interactive in that there's a lot of discussion. Now, whether that's your thing or not, it's not ours, but (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, it's hard to argue that a game like Pandemic isn't interactive. Maybe it shouldn't be as interactive as it is, but cooperative games,
1: that's often what people like about them is that they are highly interactive. I guess the question is, Mark. Are we very interactive players? Is interactivity an XYZ factor as much on the game or is it as much of a factor on the players because we were playing um Underwater Cities which we will talk about in the next episode and I was cursing you out a bunch for every small things and joking we were having a jovial old time and I was thinking if you were a layperson looking at us I think you would think that we were interacting in that game and that game could yeah. be interactiv- interactive interactive
0: I think you can have a highly non-interactive game or a a game with low interactivity, but be interactive players. And, you know, that's still a very fun experience So that, you know, that's an aspect of the gamers,
1: not the game itself. Is that an explicit interactivity or not? Because that's, I think, where my disconnect is. And we'll wait until you say the implicit ones, because I think that's more what I think is interactive. But that's my disconnect here is do I have to be shouting at people and the game has to give me a mechanism to shout at people? to have it be interactive, because I'm going to shout at Mark anyways. I mean, I'm going to curse you well, out. Yeah. I'm going to say things that I can't repeat on the podcast because of how mean you're being, you know, all stuff like that, <laughs> you know, and it's it's, well, it's it's fun.
0: Yeah. And believe me, curse at Mark is not in the rule set for underwater cities. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have played it, but oh, it, it is now <laughs> that is not an action spot on the board but we're very interactive players. But I I do agree with you completely. That's why I also took a shot at making a list of implicit interactivity. These are things that people are looking at games that have implicit interactivity and they say, well, that game's not very interactive. And well, it is. It might be low interactivity, but there is interactivity. So what are some ways that we can have implicit interactivity? Well, one of them is a common goal that we're all trying to race to get. This would be an ending condition where the first person to get uh, three underwater domes gets that card. It is an interaction. I mean, it's not a constant. We're not you know, negotiating to get that card. It's just whoever meets that goal first gets it. It is affecting the state of other people on the board because now that is not a resource that they can get. Limited resources on the same vein as something where uh, a Feast for Odin, there's a limited number of spaces. And if you take it first, I can't take it. We interacted right there. There are things that are even probably less obvious, but much larger in terms of interactivity, such as how you change the game or board state. 18xx is chock full of implicit interactivity. A case like this would be changing the stock value, right? You sell one of my shares, my stock value goes down. I lost a whole bunch of value in my portfolio and I didn't do anything, right? I just sat there and I just lost money. We were very interactive, but nobody but a spreadsheet could see it. There's some more explicit things, too, like tragic tracking me place, you know, blocking me out of areas, laying a token that are a little more obvious. But 18xx is a highly interactive game. Right. Jake, can you think of other
1: implicit interactivity touch points? Well, it's kind of looking at what other people want and trying to guess what they're going to do. So let's say let's take a game like Arboretum, which I believe to a layperson would not look very interactive. Because you're functionally drawing cards, playing cards, and shouting at each other. That's kind of the, the rule set of the game. The latter part being something <laughs> I've added. But it's, it's, it's really a game that you could play in complete and utter total silence. But functionally, I am constantly reading what John McClellan is doing with his cards and what he's taken and what I think is in his hand. Because that's the game. The game is not building a path. That's not a very interesting game. Timing on when you build the path is interesting, but knowing at what point you can put that down. And I don't think most people, and I, I don't know why this happened, agree with me on this point. Maybe, maybe I'm reading that wrong, but I think people think of like how social a game is and how easy it is to do that as interactivity. But for me personally, it's whether or not a game can even run without there being a table of people. Because Arboretum is straight up not a game unless you add some weird solo variant. But if you take a game like Feast for Odin and you're trying to score against something else, a certain threshold or whatever, that's completely multiplayer solitaire or X, Y, Z reason,
0: you know? Yeah. And I would actually say in the case of Feast for Odin that the Norwegians has made it much more interactive because a lot of vanilla Feast for Odin games came down to, hey, I'm going to get some ships and we're all going to uh, emigrate. And uh, that's sort of what everybody does in the last round. They chopped out a bunch of those spots in the Norwegians. So now if somebody decides to emigrate, that means that everybody else doesn't get to. Right. So only one person gets to
1: it. It becomes a race to get it.
0: Yeah. And that is a level of implicit interactivity that maybe isn't as high as games like 18xx or as high as Sidereal Confluence when we're all shouting out bargaining deals. But it's definitely interactivity. Absolutely.
1: So what is the your definition of? interactivity than mark
0: well i think so i'm going to cut to the thesis statement of this little discussion because we talked this over last night by the way we uh, jake and i drove home on the uh, red eye last night from our cabin con and you know about 1 in the morning we were somewhere in central minnesota having a having a chat about this what we finally landed on i think was that a game with no interactivity is a game that could be played solitarily by ourselves and has no dependency on anybody else at the table so like if you and me We're both silently doing the same Sudoku at the table and just seeing if we could both get it. That has no interactivity. There's no dependency on each other whatsoever. Now, if we were racing to see who got it first, now suddenly that same activity became interactive. Very marginally so, but it is interactive. We're racing. And now there's a challenge between you and I. And the social contract is is that we're trying to beat the other person. So it's a low amount of interactivity. A uh, quarter step up from that that's not none, but low interactivity would be something like Metro X, where we're all working on what is functionally a Sudoku, but we are racing to a goal at the end. We are all trying to complete routes first and get that extra bonus point. So, And believe me, people do shout out and are proud of when they finish a specific route. So there certainly is a small amount, but there is interactivity there. Weirdly, what I had a hard, harder time figuring out are examples for what has high interactivity. I think Sidereal Confluence is a negotiation game. Also games like Chinatown or a lot of auction games like The Estates, I would say would definitely be a high interactivity game. Some of those games that are already high, we've made even higher. Like we have a weird tradition in our group of taking a game like Modern Art, which is already very interactive by the fact that there are auctions. And we somehow write a Christie's auction catalog alongside with it, with the verbal descriptions of every piece of art and uh, much laughs are had by all. Like you'd think we were playing a party game when you watch us play Modern Art.
1: Right. And so I guess that's my whole takeaway on this whole discussion is why does the board state and the personality of people who are playing seem to impact, at least maybe we're perceiving this wrong, but it seems to impact what an average gamer would think is an interactive and non-interactive game. To me personally, I think a game like 18xx and Arboretum and games that will not run unless you choose to run it, you get to choose the pacing in Arboretum, you get to choose the pacing in 18xx is a highly interactive game. It's it's completely dependent on what the group and people want to do. So it's really interesting to see. But I know there's people who disagree with me, especially on Arboretum. So I, I I don't know. It's 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 an interesting takeaway.
0: Yeah, I think that we what we really need to do is we need to change out whether something is interactive or not versus whether or not something is social. Yes, because it's a different thing. Definitely. So I think ultimately we need to maybe really rethink about what we use the word interactivity for and talk about how social a game is versus how interactivity it is, because I think often when people say interactivity, they
1: really mean social. Yeah. And I guess that's I guess the takeaway. And I'm going to try to do that as well, because we're very social gamers. We chat a lot. I mean, even in games that are definitely heads down games, Caverna, Metro X. Metro X is the perfect example. It's very low interactivity. The only real way that you interact is by finishing a line before other people. And we shout at each other when that happens. You know, we just have anger. It's this group, very social dynamic of people being very mad at whatever's happening. So I think we need to use those terms.
0: And I think maybe that's, you know, you and I both definitely are completely fine with a game that's multi-person solitaire for exactly that reason, because we make it interactive. We make it social. There we go. By the fact that we're yelling at each other and just. Joking around and mocking each other's board state and all of that stuff. So we make it social, even if it's
1: really not very interactive. Wonderful. We we figured that we figured it out, Mark. We solved another thing. What, what we need to put out this podcast more often to define terms. We figured it out. I know. It's easy. We need to add another dimension to the mogul scale. Right, Jake? No. the soon we get to a game where it's going to be like a freaking skew on the back of it. This is a four, eight, three, nine, red, 12 game. <laughs> Clearly, that's exactly
0: good. But I do think as we talk about games in the future, I don't think we need to add it to the mogul scale. I'm completely joking. But I do think that just making a commentary on what we perceive the level of interaction in that
1: game might not be a bad thing to just add to our comments. Wonderful. I think that's a great take, Mark. No wonder we have a podcast together. We just agree on everything. It's great. I know, man. Hey, it feels good to do this again, Jake. I know, it's been a while, and we're finally actually, I think, going to be done in around an hour, which is the goal for this podcast, but it seems like it's been an hour (laughs) 40 or hour 30 for the last handful of episodes.
0: Well, we had one big point salad-style catch-up to take care of, so I think we're going to crank out another one in pretty short order here just to make sure we uh, continue to talk about all the amazing games we've had a chance to talk about recently. Plus, i got some more fun topics for you, Jake. Wonderful. All right,
1: well, we've been the Gaming Moguls. I'm Mark. I'm... You're Jake. What?! It's very interactive, Mark. We're changing. Oh. Everyone's <laughs> oh, We're social. For the Gaming Moguls. I'm Jake. Man, that feels weird. I know. I'm Mark. All right. <laughs> See you guys. See you next episode. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, Guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.